0: life audio hello and welcome to kynos project i'm dale and i am Tamara,
1: and we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings well october is here it is and that means pumpkin spice that spooky season is upon us
0: pumpkin spice
1: and everything nice that too Tamara, one of your favorite holidays is Halloween. It is. Because you're a Satan worshiper and a heretic, and so naturally Indeed. Halloween is one of your favorite holidays. In fact, you've already gotten into the Halloween spirit, and you purchased some home decor.
0: The way he said decor.
1: <laughs> and you're ready to go.
0: Yeah, well, I was until my children destroyed them, but Yes.
1: I mean, those skeletons you brought home did look like toys. You tried to, like, put them on the shelf, and they weren't having that. They were ready to play with them. Yeah. And then subsequently ripped them
0: to shreds. Thankfully, they were not the most expensive thing I purchased by way of Halloween decor. But I was a little bummed when the children broke the arms off of the skeletons. Silas did want to know where the skeleton's tongue was. And so then I had to explain to him, it's just bones, and there's no tongue, and... He was very upset about that, too. So maybe that's why he broke the arm off. I don't know. You don't have a tongue. Now you don't have an arm. Here we go. Them's the breaks.
1: (laughs) But it being October, I figured that we would get into the spirit of all things spooky by discussing something that has haunted the dreams and imaginations of American evangelicals the past few decades, and that is the theology of the rapture. And in particular, a phenomenon that has been popping up in some evangelical circles and some ex-evangelical circles, uh, and it's been popping up for a while, uh, but it was actually brought to light recently by a kind of bombshell CNN story, uh, uh, an article uh, about this phenomenon that is rapture anxiety. So I thought we'd talk about that today, but we'll do that in just a moment. The rapture. Let's talk about that today. So the idea of the rapture, dear listener at home, if you don't know what that is, (laughs) is this idea that Jesus is going to come back prior to coming back in his glorious return. And when he comes back in this kind of secret return, he's going to take Christians out of the world to be with him in heaven. And this event will basically signal the beginning of the end of the world, and so there's a couple different viewpoints out there about the rapture, uh, but probably the most popular viewpoint is that the rapture could happen at any moment. That right. at any moment, you could be taken away, that cars will be left without their drivers, that clothes, clothes will be left without their bodies, yes. and it'll just be in an instant. And this view, kind of beginning in the latter half, of the uh, 20th century, this viewpoint of of the rapture and that belief uh, really became prominent in evangelical spaces and, like, really strongly emphasized, like, to the point where certain Christian leaders have built their entire platform on pretty much just talking about the rapture and other end times-related theories and theology.
0: Yeah, where it's not something they're only talking about, you know, at a certain time of the year, or once a year, it's a topic that continues to circle <laughs> it's back. It's
1: rapture season. It's Well,
0: not that it's rapture season, but, you know, there are some pretty fundamental topics that I think churches are mindful of and want to speak on throughout the course of a year. Right. And speaking of end times and ecclesiology and eschatology, those are just fundamental things that at some point, as a preacher, you should probably make sure it makes it into the preaching calendar but there are other churches that this is every like this is, sunday this is their thing. <laughs> this, this is, is what we talk about yeah yeah
1: yeah and it's also inspired like tons of christian books and movies probably the most popular among them be, being left behind The books and the Kirk Cameron film and later the Nicolas Cage film, I didn't see that one.
0: I didn't see that one either. And the Left Behind series, they did multiple versions of that. There was like a teenager version, which of course my mother bought me and I read all of them. They were much smaller than the really large books for the adults. And then there was even a younger version for like elementary school and even preschool kids. So it really became an industry in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tim LaHaye wasn't the first person to be you know on this train of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I forget who the other author was, but Tim LaHaye is kind of like the, the, big, the name big name in there.
0: But he was certainly...
1: My man made some money.
0: Yeah, he it really took off with him. And apart from even just the books, you also had, again, the sermon series and a lot of plays. I had seen many plays that depicted the rapture um, did
1: people just like spin off stage or <laughs> pretty like, much, was there like a curtain that dropped and then like, it was just their clothes. Yeah, It they? was just
0: the next scene and they were all gone and there was like piles of clothes on the stage. So yeah, it was, I mean, it was <laughs> pretty awesome. terrifying as a, as a kid in elementary school. I remember having long conversations with my mom and I was just filled with tears because I was so afraid of being left behind.
1: Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today because Uh, Because there was such this strong emphasis on this rapture theology, uh, along with these fictionalized images and literature and plays and movies, many people who grew up in homes in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, where they were like constantly being told uh, to be ready to be snatched up by Jesus at any moment, or if they weren't ready— they would be left behind to endure the Great Tribulation and worldwide earthquakes and all kinds of natural catastrophes. And they would either have to take the mark of the beast and get their heads chopped off by associates of the Antichrist. And so because of that, understandably, that has led to a little bit of anxiety in some people when you're just at the dinner table talking about the possibility of your entire family disappearing into thin air and you being beheaded. Where that's just like, you know, that's a strong point of emphasis in your daily life is to discuss these things
0: absolutely I could say I have rapture anxiety uh you know you wake up and your whole family's gone and you immediately don't think oh maybe they went to the store maybe there's a note left letting me know because now I'm a teenager and it's okay for them to leave immediately your first thought is oh no I've been left behind and I know so many other people who have similar stories where the most logical and rational explanation for a certain panic in a situation of the rest of your family or the rest of the people you were with not being in that room anymore is certainly the rapture happened and I thought I would be raptured but here it is I was not
1: yeah and there's so many stories that um, so the CNN article it was titled "For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal," and they they interviewed a couple of different people. Um, but then there were comments once the article was published of people sharing their stories and very much this similar story. Like this one person in uh, one post commented about how they came home from like school and then they saw like a pile of clothes and there was nobody in the house and so they thought that they got left behind. And so they started calling up all their church friends, couldn't get a hold of anybody. And it turns out that, like, a friend had come over and had gone out on a run with his sister. And that's why the clothes were there. And they were, that's why no one was answering the phones because they were on a run or whatever. Or someone, like, you know, waking up from a nap and, like, their mom Mm -hmm. went to the store. And then there's a pile of clothing on their parents' bed, and the house is quiet and you you think that you got left behind like that's not an uncommon not thing where you, people wake stories. up in a cold sweat thinking yeah. that like they're going to get their their heads chopped mm-hmm. off in the coming years
0: has that ever happened to you have you woken up in some bizarre situation no one was home or it was just abnormal and you assumed the rapture happened
1: uh no i don't think uh, i ever assumed the okay. rapture had happened
0: i certainly did i'm like oh no I'm going to have to get my head chopped off because that's the next thing you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? If for whatever reason you didn't make it into the rapture, now you're in the great tribulation. And the option is to take the mark of the beast, which you don't want to do that, right? So you, of course, you don't No, Uh, Come on. So (laughs) you don't want to take the mark of the beast. And that means the only other option is to get your head chopped off. And that was, I had nightmares as a kid about, my head getting chopped off because I was so afraid of accidentally taking the mark of the beast or I had the mark of the beast, didn't know it, and I was manipulated into it or whatever. And I would wake up just in tears thinking, oh, no, I missed it. And I was supposed to get my head chopped off and I didn't because I accidentally took the mark of the beast. Pretty dramatic, I guess. Now that we're talking (laughs) about it, I'm realizing, okay, there's some validity to this CNN article. Well,
1: and what's crazy is not that that happened to you or that was an experience you had, but the frequency with which that experience is multiplied in a lot of other people. And so the fact of the matter is that um, like mental health professionals are seeing these kinds of lingering effects of anxiety enough that like quote-unquote rapture anxiety has become like a clinically significant term. And in the CNN article, they uh, interviewed a number of people, but one was a religious researcher named Darren Slade. And this is something that he said. He said, quote, This is a new area of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma leads to an increase in anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors, such as I... Uh, need to say this prayer of salvation so many times, or I need to confess my sins so often. Now imagine you are taught that at any minute you could be left here on earth. What does that do for the teenager who just had premarital sex, or even simply took the Lord's name in vain? And they go on to just like talk about the real anxiety of like, um, the phrase I heard growing up, and this is like super twisted, like Jesus can see you even when you're peeing. Like, he sees you everywhere. He sees all. And so if you even slip up by being a normal teenager who does normal teenager foolish things, if Jesus comes back at that moment, man, like, what happens? Do you not make it in? Do you get left behind? Now you get chopped off.
0: Right. But that understanding of... The end times then influences in whatever way your theology of salvation, right? So we now have that unfolds another conversation of how does salvation work? Can you lose salvation or once you are sealed by the blood of Christ, it that be undone by some kind of sin. So it's just interesting how those understanding of, salvation itself and whether or not one saved, always saved, or you can lose your salvation. And then your theology of the rapture really become pretty intertwined. And if you have a fear of losing your salvation or this lack of security of your salvation, the end times and the rapture specifically is absolutely terrifying. Because if you have assurance of your salvation in Christ and knowing that nothing can take away your salvation then the rapture really shouldn't be that concerning. I mean, yes, the idea of just being like swooped up in the middle of a moment is really startling. But what has played into a lot of fears of myself and even other people I know is that fear of, oh, no, what if I wasn't really saved? And so this fear is more about the lack of security in your salvation rather than just this instant moment of being taken up with the Lord.
1: Yeah, and I grew up in not a once-saved, always-saved household. So there was a bit of existential dread, just low-level existential dread that came along with the idea that the rapture could happen at any moment. But what's interesting about this theology of the rapture is that it actually... So me growing up, like, the rapture theology, it wasn't like expressed as like, this is the particular tradition we're in. It was like, this is is the the Bible. This is what the Bible says. Um, But if you look into it, what's interesting about rapture theology is that it is part of a specific sliver within the Christian tradition and actually a relatively recent one if we are thinking about the scope of, you know, Christian tradition for the past 2000 years. So we want to talk about that, but we'll do that in just a minute. Alright, so we're talking about rapture theology, but we want to put it in perspective of all the other different end times or eschatological, theological viewpoints uh, in that holding to this view of the rapture is actually, in the history of the church, a minority view. And what's interesting about it is that for us who grew up evangelicals, there's only a small sliver in the church, both like globally and historically that has fallen in this camp. And it just so happens to be the camp that we were raised up in. So Catholics don't hold to this view. A lot of mainline Protestants don't hold to this view. It's pretty unique to American evangelicals to have
0: this sort of view. Right. And for me, growing up, I didn't know that was the case. I thought this is just the Christian view of how God is going to redeem humanity and his relationship uh, with humanity is going to look like this as he carries out um, that final act of restoring and bringing back the wholeness of humanity, his creation. But like you said, in regards to church history it's this is not the widely held view and even in regards to Christianity as a whole now across the entire globe, this is really only within the sector of American evangelical Christianity.
1: But we took it at the go- as the gospel because Tim LaHaye and Kirk Cameron told us so. And yeah. so, but uh, rapture theology, it's part of a broader framework of theology referred to as dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is this theological system that was, kind of formalized by this theologian named John Nelson Darby in the 19th century. And really in the simplest terms, it sets forth that God has orchestrated history in di- distinct eras or dispensations. So there was one phase or dispensation before sin entered the world. And then there was the promise to Abraham in the establishment of Israel. And that was a dispensation of God's particular uh, sovereignty and providence and grace in that time. Then there was the dispensation of the period of the Mosaic law. And then there was this dispensation where Jesus came and there was the beginning of the age of the church. And uh, dispensationalists would say that that's the dispensation that we're in right now is the church era. And then to dispensationalists, they believe that there are future eras that will come after the church age. So the rapture would kind of mark the end of the church age. Then there would be the Great Tribulation. Then there would be the Millennial Reign, where Jesus comes and physically reigns on the earth for a thousand years. Then there's the Final Judgment. And then finally the Eternal State, where there's a new heavens and a new earth. And there's kind of some differing views within that, but that's kind of the the main kind of framework.
0: Yeah, there are some who might say there's more or less uh, dispensations within the history of God's working with humanity. But for the most part, there's seven to eight main dispensations that people who hold to dispensationalism would agree upon.
1: Right. And you can kind of quibble over like what from one to the next, but.
0: Right. But most, I think just about every dispensationalist would agree we are in the dispensation of the church age.
1: Correct. And that that um, dispensation will be ended either with the rapture or the start of the Great Tribulation. And there's a little bit of discrepancy there because there's pre-mill dispensationalists who think that basically the rapture can happen at any moment.
0: Well, and to kind of clarify that more, pre-mill would suggest it's going to happen before Christ comes to reign for a thousand years. Oh, yes. yes. Before.
1: Yes, pre-mill and then also pre-trib. Yes. Would be, you think it's going to happen and that'll start the seven-year tribulation. Right. Then there's people who are like pre-wrath or it's called mid-trib that like the events that kind of end the church age will start. And then halfway through that, then the, the rapture will happen. And then there's others who think that it'll happen at the end of the tribulation where Jesus basically just like a quick stop by and pick up (laughs) on his way back to do the millennial reign. And so that one makes a little less sense to me in terms of like just like logically speaking, but there there are people that hold to that view of it.
0: And for a bit of clarification, if you're not as familiar with these terms, because I'm going to be very honest, I didn't know any of this language or any of these terms until college. And so to say I was a dispensationalist, I wouldn't have even understood what that meant because I just...
1: You were, but you just didn't know it. I didn't it, right? know
0: yeah. it. Yeah. And I didn't even know like pre-mill, mid-trib, post-trib, like any of that vocabulary. And really all of those terms are just defining when is the rapture going to happen in the sequence of events of here are the final things that are going to happen. When do we think the rapture is actually going to fall in that timeline? And so people, even underneath the dispensationalist camp, would differ on when exactly the rapture is happening. And so that's why you have those clarifying terms within a dispensationalist view of whether it's premill. So prior to Jesus coming and reigning for a thousand years, that's when the rapture is going to happen. If it's mid-trib, the tribulation's already happening. We're all living in it, whether you're saved or not. And then at some point in the middle of those seven years of the tribulation, the rapture is going to happen. So there's a lot of details and nuances and I guess differing of exactly pinpointing when the rapture is going to happen. But all dispensationalists would say it is going to happen in this way. Um, it's just where on the timeline is it's going to happen is where people differ.
1: Yeah. And what you said was interesting about not knowing you were a dispensationalist. Like growing up, you wouldn't say I'm a pre-millennial, pre-trib dispensationalist. You would say I'm a Christian. Yes and there kind of in lies the problem, right, because that's a minority view within Christianity, all this to say that, in effect, no one believed in the rapture on mass as we've kind of described it until the eighteen hundreds and dispensationalism came into vogue, and so like I mean, there were small pockets of theologians who had made maybe made statements that had alluded to this, but there was no real traction. To the idea of the rapture until the 1800s, which means that we went 1800 years of church and literally no Christian tradition in Roman Catholicism, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in Protestantism had ever really had this idea until dispensationalism was kind of like Mm -hmm. formalized and codified.
0: And it doesn't make it wrong to say because it hasn't been part of church history this is the incorrect view as we understand the end times but it is absolutely noteworthy that the the majorly held view within american evangelicalism has not been the view among church history for yeah 18 centuries
1: yeah it's not the quote-unquote christian view it's a christian view yeah and relatively speaking, a recent one Mm -hmm. in terms of the way that it's gained popular acceptance.
0: And it's not often presented that way, which I think you were alluding to earlier, is you're just told this is the view within your church or within groups or however that looks, instead of saying, as a church, we understand there are different views, but based on our understanding of scripture and studying of scripture and praying, this is where we have landed on this. I've never heard it presented that way until college. And I was just completely like, it felt like the rug was taken out from under me and I had just been living a lie my whole life. And my life is a lie. Well, and I went home and was just very concerned about it thinking, wow, like no one told me this is a view and not the view. And so it, that was a real moment, a real pivotal moment in my own faith and understanding of scripture and even understanding when someone's presenting you a theological view that in some regards they're presenting what they have landed on rather than giving you all of the options and then expressing what they've landed on.
1: Yeah. So the idea of the rapture wasn't really a thing until the 1800s. Fast forward to the 20th century, like the mid 20th century and rapture theology has really become a main point of emphasis in evangelical teaching and in evangelical evangelistic efforts. And the reason for that, there's a lot of reasons for it, but if we can simplify it down to say, like, here's the one thing to make it nice and neat, because, you know, history is a linear thing and that we can make sense of in one podcast. But one of the reasons uh, we can attribute that to is the fact that we were like at the height of the Cold War and it felt like a very real possibility that the end of the world was coming soon via nuclear annihilation. So it makes sense that during that period, that there is an increased emphasis on end times theology. And because a lot of evangelicalism had folded into dispensationalism by that point, boom, that becomes like a real main point of emphasis uh, during that period. I mean, side note, like, part of the reason why Billy Graham was so compelling one, he was a great preacher and he was a great strategist and all those kinds of things. But he was also doing these crusades against the backdrop of the possibility of nuclear Holocaust. So he's saying, if we're all going to be dead tomorrow, probably I can really do the hard sell. Um, and all of that kind of folds into this increased emphasis on end times theology, because it felt like we were in end of days during the height of the cold war
0: which makes complete sense if that is all that is happening around you. And it seems as if this is a very present reality. Of course, we're going to start wondering what does this actually look like in scripture where previous generations, it might not have been on the forefront of their mind because they weren't dealing with this massive war that could wipe out the entire world. Like that just wasn't within the framework of how they were thinking about war at all. But now it is, and it's a real possibility. So we better brush up on our theology on what do we actually believe about this? What does the Bible say about this? So it makes sense that this all came out during the Cold War because previous generations, it just wouldn't have been what they were facing. It wouldn't have been a reality that they were looking to Scripture for answers for.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting is about this, at the height of the Cold War, this is really emphasized. This minority view kind of becomes projected as though it is like, uh, you know, the authoritative Christian view in a lot of circles. But even as the Cold War began to wane and the threat of nuclear war with it, there was such an em- emphasis within evangelicalism still on this theology that it became just a frequent topic of Christian publishing and media. And so the what kind of happened in that moment of what was on people's minds kind of became immortalized in Christian publishing and media. And so, fast forward again to like the 80s and the 90s, there was stuff certainly in the 60s and the 70s that was fictionalized tellings of the rapture and things like that. Um, but it, it was kind of present through those decades into the 90s, where you have kids that are pretty much raised on these stories um, that are kind of like based on true future events, quote unquote that are trying to imagine what this rapture is going to be like. Uh, And obviously the most prominent among them was left behind. And I think the first book came out in like 1995. So that really is kind of like the apex of this Mm -hmm. building into this media machine around uh, theology, that if you speak to somebody who is uh, not in a really evangelical Protestant denomination, who's Eastern Orthodox, who's Catholic, To them, this theology is kind of a fringe view.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's very foreign. Probably wasn't something they were even familiar with unless they heard the craze of the Left Behind series and the movie. So it's very possible that it became so mainstream in its view because of all of the media and publishing around it that other people, even non-Christians, likely would have heard of it to some degree.
1: That is true because probably... um even among those who aren't Christians but kind of have a general idea of Christian belief or whatever, would probably tell you like, yeah, this whole rapture thing, that's the Christian view. Right. And it's, it's interesting how how the power of media, I guess, mm. the power of literature, the power of film, the power of media to make it seem like this is the authoritative interpretation and this is what everybody has believed for always And really, it's it's not exactly the case.
0: Right. And as you look to scripture, there's really only one place that we see the rapture referenced in the way that uh, rapture theology has understood it.
1: Yeah. So we have literally hundreds or thousands of published stories, at least three films. There's more films than that. At least three left behind films. Uh, All hinging on this one Bible verse. Mm-hmm. This Bible verse is doing some really heavy
0: lifting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to say it, yeah. And that verse is 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is where we see that, like, caught up in the clouds. You will leave the earth and just be... Flying, maybe not flying, but you're going to be caught up with the Lord.
1: Yeah, and this verse was in the context of Paul talking to the Thessalonian church about their fear of people having died before Jesus returned. Like, did they miss it? Did Are they not going to be in the kingdom of heaven? Um, and he's telling them, like, no, they died and they're present with the Lord, and, you know, I'll do you one better, that um, we are going to be caught up with Jesus, even, uh, you know, those of us who are alive when Jesus returns, we're going to be caught up and meet with all of those who have gone before us and have died in Christ. Uh, and that's where they, you know, this idea of the rapture comes from, this phrase caught up, which in Greek is harpazo. So naturally, that's where the word rapture comes from. Of course. But It means. It makes perfect sense. Snatched up or seized. And this verse, when it was translated in the Latin Vulgate by St. Jerome in the 3rd century, uh, which kind of became the authoritative translation used by the the Roman Church uh, for centuries to come, and I think is still consulted to this day uh, among Roman Catholics. It is. Um, it translates harpazo to rapio. Rapio gets transliterated and beat up a little bit, and that's where we get the word Rapture. So, ironically, this is so ironic to me. Ironically enough, the term rapture, which is a theology held almost exclusively by evangelicals who tend to have a great amount of distaste for Roman Catholics, derives from a Latin word, a Roman word, found in the authoritative translation used by Roman Catholics who themselves do not hold to rapture theology.
0: That is very ironic. Yeah, it's just yeah, I it's mean, so weird to me because
1: is. there yeah. are you, you know, in terms of like intramural uh, <laughs> fights, right? Evangelicals re- like the, the only people that evangelicals like worse than Roman Catholics are probably Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Where there's just I grew up a lot of, around a lot of like really like anti-Catholic really rhetoric.
0: Mm. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see that a lot. Within
1: white evangelicalism, there's like a lot of that.
0: I think there were, for my community, there were a lot of families who grew up in the Catholic tradition and the Catholic faith and and now they're Christians. So, I think there was a little bit more respect for the Catholic faith within the communities that I grew up in. Um, even though they were essentially converting out of it into Christianity.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up around a lot of that too, but it was like, I was raised Roman Catholic and then I, actually became a christian mm. because i wasn't roman catholic anymore so there's like that little kind of yeah kind of tilt to it uh but those who hold to this rapture theology so that's the one verse right but there's a constellation of other
0: right because ideas you have this that, like thief in the night view yeah that and, accompanies it and that's a pretty heavy part of it is not only will you be taken up in the clouds but it will come at the most random moment, just like a thief in the night who comes to steal from you but, anyway. yeah, so
1: that thief in the night um phrase is used a lot it's in revelation sixteen fifteen it's in matthew twenty four forty three uh Jesus said it first thessalonians five two and first thessalonians five 4. 2 peter three ten so we have Jesus Peter and Paul all using this mm-hmm. phrase at one point or another, and they're all talking about the same thing but they're not talking about uh, the rapture per se. Whenever they're speaking about it, they're, they're talking about the day of the Lord or uh, the day of judgment. Those two terms are used kind of interchangeably, where it's talking about people are going to be living their lives and the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, like a like it will be a very violent jolting thing when the Lord returns to judge. And so it's referring more to the swiftness of, uh, of the final judgment rather than the idea that Christians would be snatched up out of their clothing in the middle of the night and out of their cars and things like that. I mean, those things are related. Um, but those who hold to a rapture theology kind of,
0: they're intertwined, they tease those things
1: out and say that this is referring to the rapture of, uh, a pre return of, of Jesus in glory.
0: Right. In scripture, the day of the Lord is a very significant moment. You, you read about it in the Old Testament and you read about it in the New Testament is the day of the Lord is this final day of judgment.
1: And in this the Old Testament, that, there were many days of the Lord, right. kind of like lowercase d, days yes. of when judgment was visited upon whoever he said uh-huh. judgment was going to be on. Like
0: this is the day of the Lord. But
1: then there is one, the day of the Lord, mm-hmm. which is referring to the final judgment.
0: And what's interesting about that is when you speak of the rapture for Christians, right, the rapture is a good thing because you're going to be with the Lord. But the day of the Lord is, throughout Scripture, is, is like kind of a scary moment in time because this is the day that the day of the Lord is judging people. And I've always found it interesting that Oftentimes, I haven't heard about the Day of the Lord like preaching-wise on like on a Sunday morning service. I, I had never heard the Day of the Lord preached. It wasn't until undergrad Old Testament course where we really spent a lot of time on understanding the Day of the Lord. And it was in that moment it all clicked. I thought, wow, the Day of the Lord is kind of a moment.
1: It's kind of it's, terrible, yeah.
0: It's kind of a scary moment in time. And... You just really think about all of the sin of humanity that has accumulated. And this is the day when the Lord is finally judging humanity for its sin. Yeah, that's not a day that we're like thinking of and it's exciting about. But yet the rapture was always painted as this is the day when all of, you know, people of faith are going to finally be with the Lord and you get to, at least in the the faith that I was in, And you get to avoid the tribulation and the day of judgment and all of these other things that are gonna be happen that are gonna be pretty terrible and scary for people.
1: Yeah. I mean if you're mid trib, you're like, well, your head might get lobbed off still.
0: Yeah. But but
1: if you stick around if you survive long enough
0: Right, but pre trib, I mean.
1: Pre trib's like, you know, free ice cream for everybody.
0: That's exactly what it was. All you have to do is make sure you make it to the rapture. You're in the clear.
1: Just by the, the the hair of your chin, yeah. make it to the rapture. So, what do we do with this? Because there's a case to be made for premillennial rapture theology and dispensationalism and the whole bit. I grew up around dispensationalists. Some of my best friends are dispensationalists, um, but there's also a strong case to be made against it. And so, what are the, there's a couple of other frameworks that, and obviously within dispensationalism, there's a lot of leeway back and forth, because a, it's a very large framework. It is. Uh, and this rapture piece is just one bit of it, but there are other frameworks that don't have this rapture piece at all. Um, what are those frameworks, and w- what's involved with those?
0: Yeah, so there's two other main theological views about the structure of God's redemptive relationship with humanity, uh, and again, we've spent most of this time talking about dispensationalism particularly because of really the aftermath of people just having this overwhelming anxiety of the rapture happening and um, just these fears that have welled up within people. And they're now like living through it and having to deal with that, which is a really terrible effect of any kind of theology, right? But anyways, there are two other main theologies that people hold to, and one of them is covenant theology, uh, which is and these are the baby dunkers, right? Yes, yes.
1: For the listeners at home, uh, pedo baptists infant baptism, exactly. And there are Catholics and Protestants who who, who baptize. That. Yes, which uh, is another thing I grew up with thinking that that wasn't like kosher for Protestant Christians. If if Catholics are not Christians and Catholics uh, baptize infants. Then, if you baptize infants, then you're not a real Christian. That's the theology I was raised on. Not realizing it's, there are entire entire Protestant denominations uh-huh. that are infant yeah. baptism.
0: It's just a terrible way to view theology, is because we dislike this group of people of faith, then everything that they do is not the Christian way. Anyway, so back to what I was talking about: covenant sorry, theology. That was a tangent. Of, you really went off on sorry. a tangent there. So covenant theology is this understanding that God has structured his relationship with humanity by covenants. So throughout the Old Testament, there are various covenants established by God. You see the covenant with Abraham, the giving of the law, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant um, after Jesus comes. So the Davidic covenant and the new covenant, ultimately all of these fit under one larger covenant, which is the covenant of grace. So there's two main covenants in covenant theology, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. But the covenant of grace is at play after the fall. And so everything has to fall into this one, which is why you see all of these other covenants within the Old Testament that are really um, just read in scripture as differing administrations to the covenant of grace. So every aspect of humanity and relationship that God has with humanity falls into one of these covenant pieces that are under the larger covenant of grace. So it's not dispensationalism. It is now we are in this new covenant and this is the covenant that we are going to continue to be in until Christ's second return.
1: I'm not going to lie. The differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism feels like semantics like, oh, we just swap out dispensation for covenant. I think one of the defining differences for me that helps me make sense of like the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism is the idea that the church replaces Israel in terms of like the covenant has switched over. Whereas in dispensationalism, there's a covenant with Israel that remains intact, right? as well as the covenant with the church. Uh, In covenant theology, um, it's often referred to as, in a derogatory way, as replacement theology, where the covenant with Israel has been superseded by the covenant with the church.
0: Mm -hmm. That is probably one of the largest distinctions between dispensationalism in covenant theology is the relationship with Israel. And how is the relationship with Israel and the church still happening today? Is there two separate distinctive relationships within dispensationalism, they would say yes. There is a whole slew of promises that is in the Old Testament that is yet to be fulfilled specifically to Israel. And that is whether or not they believe in Christ or not, that doesn't matter. There are still promises that have yet to be fulfilled to Israel, which interestingly enough has pretty dramatically impacted our politics and the way that we view Israel. That's why, Christians who are dispensationalists fight so much for the independence of Israel because they want to see the fulfillment of the promise of God that Israel will once again have their land back. And so Americans then understand that to mean in a very literal sense, Israel is going to be an independent nation and they are going to be on the land that God has promised them. So then as Americans, how do we help move that promise forward? That means we must always and forever be allies of Israel, regardless of anything else, regardless of any other reason, any other political reason, any other ethical, moral. Nothing else plays into that because we just want to see the fulfillment of this promise. And according to dispensationalism, that is a very literal promise that is only to the nation of Israel. Where covenant theology would say, no, the church is, is the people of God, It was Israel that God was working through. But now we're in this new covenant where, like you said, because of Christ, that the new covenant has superseded what we saw within the Old Testament of Israel.
1: Right. And so that's covenant theology. And then there's new covenant theology, which is like covenant theology, just fresher.
0: False. New covenant theology is very similar to covenant theology. The main difference is the way that they viewed the um, Mosaic law. So you had this covenant with Moses essentially, and we had the Mosaic law presented. The new covenant theology would understand all of the Mosaic law to function together and how we interact with the Mosaic law now under the new covenant of Jesus is different than covenant theology.
1: Yeah, so with covenant theology, there's like the three different distinctions of what type of laws. It was like ceremonial...
0: Civil and moral. Okay. Those are the three distinctions that covenant theology would make. And covenant theology would say that the only one still in effect is the moral law due to like Christ fulfilling and the coming of Christ. So the only part of the Mosaic law that we as Christians now need to adhere to is the moral law. But New Covenant theology would say, no, you can't slice and dice it that way. If you hold to it, you have to hold to all of it. If you say we don't need to hold to it, then you don't need to hold to any of it. So New Covenant theology, from the way that I'm understanding it, would say we don't adhere to the Mosaic law at all, because we now have this new law that was put to put in place when Christ came, and we now hold to the morals and the ethics and the standards that Christ has given us, we don't need to refer back to the Mosaic Law to understand how we ought to live. We only need to look to Christ. And therefore, all of the Mosaic Law is null and void.
1: So covenant theology is when we look at the Mosaic Law, they say you don't need to worry about shellfish or sacrifices because that's all fulfilled in Jesus. But you do have to follow the commandments of, like, don't kill your neighbor. And the New Covenant theology would say, like, forget about the Old Testament. Sure, don't kill your neighbor, but not because Moses told you, but because Jesus told you is essentially the difference there.
0: Yes. I think you put it probably very, like, just general, but essentially, yes.
1: Just to put it in simple terms. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And the idea is not that the Mosaic law doesn't matter, but that what Jesus presented us, primarily you can see it, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes and all that of Jesus saying, this is how we ought to live. A lot of that parallels the Mosaic laws. A lot of that is reflected back in Jesus's teaching. So you can see all of those connections, but New Covenant theology would say you don't need to be concerned with the Mosaic laws at all because... We now have the teachings of Christ, and that is what we ought to follow.
1: Yeah. So all that to say, um, when it comes to premillennial dispensationalism, there are entire other worlds of systems out there where they're baptizing babies, they're denying the you know the rapture is going to happen, and these are all orthodox Christians, right? That are a lot of them even you know Protestant Christians uh, that are a hop, skip, and a jump from us theologically, mm-hmm. um, in so many other areas that it, are, there's such alignment, you know, ethically, missionally, all those kinds of things. And so, uh, there's a lot of stuff about the end times that, you know, theologians will noodle about and, uh, try to come up with stuff. I tend not to get too animated about it just because I'm like, I don't know, man, we'll, we'll find out when we get there, I guess. Um, you cause pan- it doesn't what change. Pan
0: millennial. It'll all pan out.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, hmm. man. That's like an old white professor joke. <laughs> Is that right where there? I heard it? I probably, I probably heard it in seminary. Yeah. I could just like smell the must of the room uh, yeah, yeah. and see the tweed of the coat of, of the man that coined that phrase. Um, yeah. So I tend not to get very animated about it. Um, I'm like, oh, you know, like some, sometimes I'll read one argument I'm like, wow, that's like really compelling. And then I'll read the exact opposite argument and I'll be like, wow, that's really compelling. (laughs) I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Uh, But there are some things that we do know, like Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Evil will be wiped out and only goodness and righteousness will remain. Part of that will be uh, the judgment. But for those of us who are under the grace of Jesus, we don't have to fear that judgment. And because we have the spirit of Jesus We're meant to take part in kind of creating pockets of that new heavens and new earth, that new heavenly kingdom to be breaking out in our world today, even as we wait the full revelation of it. And how and in what manner in which that's going to happen in some ways, my thought is it's not for us to know for sure how that's going to play out. Um, We can take some educated guesses based on what God has told us, but I think we, we would be well served to keep the main thing the main thing.
0: Right. And the harm that has come in the way that dispensationalism has been portrayed in media and portrayed in films and just the larger narrative that has been spoken of dispensationalism has brought forth a lot of fear and anxiety because there are these fears of everything in Revelation happening in a very literal sense. And there will be just complete chaos, complete torment, complete fear happening on the face of the earth. And hopefully you're not part of that. Hopefully you didn't get left behind. And I just don't see that being the reason any of this has been revealed to us to bring about fear in our lives as people are, who are secure in our faith and who have placed our our faith in the Savior who comes to bring redemption, who comes to bring restoration the idea of a theology leading us into fear and anxiety just seems so counterintuitive to the reason why these these things were written before us, right? The end times should bring about a sense of uh, just glorious rejoicing of the fact that our king, our savior is going to make all things right again. Like That should bring this anticipation of hope and then this victory that we get to sit in but instead what we have seen is just even Christians living in a state of fear and i don't believe that has been the intention of any any theologian or any any church service but that does seem to be the rippling effect of the way that dispensationalism dispensationalism has been presented to congregations and it seems to have been very fear driven and coming to faith based on fear and then having a sense of fear throughout your entire faith and h- hoping that you aren't left behind and having to deal with the mark of the beast or your head chopped off or these creatures that are stinging you and you're going to wish you're going to die and you can't die. Like just all of these pictures that have been presented have all just been filled with a great sense of fear. And I don't believe that is what Jesus intended as he revealed these things in scripture.